Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is an ABC podcast. Good plan, good plan. Who thought of this one? You're listening to the Out of Sanctum podcast. Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side, Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. There's the Groundbreakers, history makers. Welcome to the Outer Sanctum. I'm not Emma Race. I'm Alicia, sometimes filling in for the captain, which is really good. I've got my big girl pants on. <laughs> we are so excited to bring you some football today. And I'm with some amazing people. Who are you? Oh, I am. Well, I'm Nicole Hayes. <laughs> you weren't sure there, Nicole well, Hayes. I, it was the amazing that threw me. <laughs> That's true. Uh, hi, I'm Kate Sia. <laughs> hi, I'm Julia Kiera. <laughs> and missing is a full bench of races. I think it's a nest of races. Um, we like are that. missing the the, the, the cool car. three. A podcast of races. <laughs> a podcast of races. But we have so much to get on. We're so excited to have you here, Julia. Thanks for having me. I saw last week you had Sabrina Frederick and Melissa Hickey on, so I just feel like you're keeping with your theme of inviting guests on that straight women like to fantasise about. <laughs> so, <laughs> thanks. Where's Shiloh when you need her? You've all blushed. <laughs> it's just a bit warm in here. Oh, it, we're going to roll up our sleeves and talk firstly about the highlights of a week that was just insane in so many ways. There was close games and then there was just blowouts. Where do we start? What, what's interesting to me is how the men's competition is unfolding because it does feel like it's unfolding in a way that's increasingly unpredictable. I, I'd be pretty excited if I went for a couple of teams like West Coast and Richmond that I think mm. are kind of starting to build and, and looking pretty good. But Geelong still looks maybe a bit unbeatable in the AFLM, I don't know. But it was a pretty thrilling weekend. There was a, one particular finish which I thought was amazing. That's the, the finish in the Essendon game, right? How exciting to see our tipper. <laughs> well, it's Waller, isn't it? That's his real nickname. It is. He snagged a bag of goals anyway, but he's been twice nominated for goal of the year. That third quarter goal probably could have nailed it, could have sealed it. But then he came through, 23 seconds left, and kicked the impossible. Dylan Clark inside 50, couldn't mark. Fantasia took it. Snaps towards goal. Stringer in the goal square. Couldn't take the mark. It's on the deck. Brushing one tackle, Laverde gave to McDonald Tip and Woody. It's a miracle oh, goal. Oh, what a goal. An absolute miracle from the right forward pocket. Anthony McDonald Tip and Woody. He's the Spengali of the AFL. He's got all the tricks. He's kicked four goals and none of them more critical than that. Incredibly, 17 seconds left meant they won the game. Yeah, amazing to see. And did you see the fan footage of someone watching that goal and they were just <laughs> screaming and it reminded of us going to the footy. Have you been with us to the footy, JC? No, I haven't. But it's so cute you're talking about men's footy. I think <laughs> that, you know, like I forgot they play. Yeah, yeah footy they, do, they do like 22 matches. Oh, really? And, yeah, and then there's finals seen it. in September. Oh, wow. Can I mention a couple of commentary watches from the weekend? So one of them was um, brought to my attention by Felicity Race. Thank you. 
you, Felicity. She mentioned that there was a moment on the on one of the games on the weekend where someone put the clamps on Cunnington, which oh. sounded like it could be a bit painful. Thanks also to one of our listeners who brought to our attention the fact that one of the players had um, been identified as having carried his shoulder down the race, which sounded <laughs> Both physically impossible and quite a feat to be mm. admired, I thought. Quite an achievement it to carry painful. one's shoulder. Mm. It's against physics. What did he do with his other shoulder? Well, he was using that to carry the other one, ah. I guess. Oh. A balancing juggling act or something. Can I mention one other thing from the weekend that really warmed my heart? This is very self-serving to mention something to do with Hawthorne, but the return of Grant Birchall, mm. who'd been out for more than 700 days since he played his last game. And, you know, Grant Birchall, I think is one of those players that's a little bit sort of unheralded. He's sort of forgotten at times. He's one of six players in Hawthorne who won four premierships. And and I just wanted to share a little story, if I could, really oh, <laughs> quickly. God. We've all leaned in, about, except Julia, who's about, going, no, rolling her eyes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get on to women's footy shortly. Um, it's got, the men have to have a go, mm, Julia, yeah. you oh, know. They, don't get, they don't get much coverage. Mm. So I'm trying to correct that balance by giving them a platform. But Sorry. um so a little story about Grant Birchall really quickly, which you'll just think I'm crazy, which you may, well, you probably think just that anyway. Just bias. So when I think of Grant Birchall, I always think of this particular story, which I've told Emma Race before, but I haven't shared with you all. And that is that back in 2008, that was, of course, the, the year that Hawthorne won the premiership. And it was also the year that I was finishing my PhD. And so the two things kind of merge in my mind because I went to the footy every weekend as a release and a relief in the final stages of my PhD, which was quite stressful. There was a point in time while I was doing my PhD that I just got really stuck with a theoretical question that I couldn't get my head around, I couldn't get past. And that is that when I did my PhD, I used a kind of theoretical framework from Michel Foucault, who is a French philosopher, some people will know. Foucault has been criticised quite extensively by feminists because he never really engaged with questions about how power manifests in the lives of women. And so there was a question about whether I could really use Foucault's theoretical framework in a context where my PhD was a feminist PhD, where feminists had you know, been severely critical of him. I spent months and months thinking about this, and then one night... <laughs> I had a dream. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at this Foucault virtual arrow. Yeah, go. Yeah. Here it comes. Together at last, Grand Virtual <laughs> and Michel Foucault. So I had a dream. And in my dream, I was at the Hawthorne Football Club. I'd been invited there by Luke Hodge. From I Brisbane. Ca- <laughs> <laughs> Brisbane's own Luke Hodge. I came into this room and there was like a red curtain. It was a bit, it was very Twin Peaks. And I came I into a room say. and there was, and Luke Hodge was sitting at the front. And on one side of the room was Stephen Gillum, if you remember Stephen mm. Gillum. And on the other hand was, was Grant Birchall. And Luke Hodge said to me, I've brought you all here together today so that we can try and nut out this problem with Foucault. <laughs> I'm quite serious about this story. <laughs> Let's try and nut it out. In my dream, I was going in great detail into the various readings that I'd read multiple times. And then Grant Birchall, philosopher and scholar of of our times, feminist theorist, just kind of talked me through how to move past this impasse that I'd reached in my theoretical approach. And he said, no, look, this is how you can get around it because there's room for thinking about 
uh, resistance in Foucault's approach to discipline. And this is how you should do it. Yada, yada, yada. It was a very, very detailed Did he say dream. to go the corridor? <laughs> he said, <laughs> Take go straight it the down wing. the guts. Mm. Straight down the guts. And it was a very vivid dream that was, re- you know those dreams that you remember like every single word that was mm, happening? It was I really like intense. Was really focused. <laughs> Matthew McConaughey's hand <laughs> on your face. Yep. That's right. Like that dream with you and McConaughey. And so when I awoke, I knew what to do. I'm quite serious. And so then I went on and I finished and submitted my PhD. And so, Did you thank him? <laughs> I'm thanking him now. So I'm now bringing this story to the public. Well, we and know I, he listens. I know. He, of course he would. And I, and whenever I see Grant Birchall, I think, there he is. <laughs> Feminist French philosopher, unrecognised and unheralded yeah, until and today. <laughs> and a mentor. So I just want to thank Grant Birchall and say that if you're worried about what Birchall will do post-career... <laughs> I'm not because I see a, a role for him as a as a real feminist thinker. So he's back and he's a feminist and we need yes. to make a statue. Awesome. <laughs> uh, speaking of amazing people then, Dylan Alcott was pretty amazing. Apparently he won Wimbledon, yeah. <laughs> which is kind of amazing. So it was, it was the inaugural quad wheelchair championship and, and it was just such an extraordinary show of incredible athleticism but also just dominance. He's all, He's got the, all the Grand Slams so far and that's his 12th, I think, 12th championship. I think we can safely say it's a record that will never be beaten because how many others can say they've also won a Logie? <laughs> <laughs> so I think he's just like, he's just winning. He's winning he, at he's life winning right now. Everything. And speaking of winning, Julia, you are winning at life. But um, the under-18s, how are they doing, the women? Yeah, well, last week there were the under-18s championship in Queensland and it was a pretty fabulous display of where the women's game is heading. Georgia Patricios won player of the tournament. She's a player from Calder Cannon. She played with Vic Metro. And, look, you can go to, if you just Google AFL under-18s championship, so you can link well. to the... It'll say, did you mean AFL men's? Yes. <laughs> but once you get past that, you'll find it, right? Once you throw your computer across the room, <laughs> yes. um, you'll get to it and you can look at all the games on YouTube. And it is very exciting what the, the young women are doing and where we can see the you know the style of the game going, the skill level, the intuitiveness of the way that they play. Yeah, so a lot of those girls are going to be drafted next year. So that was great. But at the same time, we've also had the Winter Series um, in Queensland where um, some development squads from um, Brisbane Lions and Gold Coast have played each other and they've played a few games, including at the weekend. And then GWS are also doing some invitationals with the VFL and they played Essendon last week. So there is a fundamental kind of problem in women's footy in that they don't have a long winter season. But these types of things are trying to plug that gap so that girls are getting more games into them. We're developing players over the winter as, as well as in the VFL, W and all the state leagues. So it's pretty exciting. Draft time is only a couple of months away. So, oh. yeah. <laughs> so fast. Exciting. I'm Sabrina Frederick and you're listening to The Outer Sanctum. So this is where we put on our sumo wrestling suits and <laughs> melee. Uh, and there's been some amazingly big topics in the week, but let's follow on from last week. Uh, it was a great pod, by the way, Kate. Period watch. What is going on in the world of bleeding? Well, <laughs> we did have a conversation with Sabrina Frederick and Mel Hickey about how and whether 
clubs are managing menstrual cycles for, for athletes. And, and then not long after our podcast came out, we saw a story in The Telegraph about the Women's uh, Soccer World Cup, particularly the US women's soccer team. And it was fascinating because the team had decided to reveal that they had consulted an expert to manage the menstrual, menstrual cycles of all players in the lead up to and then throughout the World Cup. One of the things that the article mentioned was that the team had decided to use an app to monitor their cycles. The players were also un, um, asked to undertake a survey so that they could all talk about how they experienced their individual menstrual cycles and the difficulties that they faced or, or otherwise. And then all of that information was put in through the sports science department, through this consultant, and there was a kind of individualised and targeted management system that then rolled out. But I wanted to quote something from the article here, which really sums up why it was that the US team decided to reveal that they had done this. And the article says, high-performance teams are notoriously tight-lipped about their sports science innovations, eager to retain the edge over competitors. But the US team opted for transparency in the hope that it encourages more teams to take the issue seriously. And they also said that they wanted to end the taboo in relation to uh, women's menstruation, particularly in sport, but also more broadly. So I just thought that was wonderful that they were prepared to share that information and speak up about it. And I think that last week when we had Sabrina and Mel on, you know, there was a little bit of a, a difference of approach, I think, across the two clubs. So this, I think, is just another contribution to that discussion. And I expect that going forward, we'll see and hear more about sporting organisations and clubs in different sports really trying to to utilise sports science to manage women's menstrual cycles. I don't know if this is something you've come across ever, Julia, in your experiences with women's footy. Is it something that's talked about or, um, or managed? Yeah, I've definitely heard it mentioned all the time. Um, so, you know, I was involved in Carlton's AFLW last season and the medical staff definitely were aware of when the girls' periods fell, um, when the danger games were on. <laughs> um, and as the wellbeing person, I was probably aware of when the emotions were particularly heightened. I think there's also research around like ACLs and periods and when yes. you're more um, susceptible to that type of thing because when you're, um, I'm not a scientist, but the hormones that are being released and that they make your ligaments... Uh, Looser. Looser. Mm. Uh, and that's something I certainly felt, you know, I played a season of football uh, while I was breastfeeding and that's something after games I definitely noticed my knees and ankles were incredibly sore because they'd kind right. of been knocking around um, <laughs> all game because I was still producing those those hormones. So that's definitely a thing. I think girls, even, you know, you, you mentioned last week that because lots of um, players are same-sex attracted, they might not be getting that information around contraception. But I think it is probably more common that girls voluntarily go on the pill so that they can monitor their, their periods and know when they fall and so on. So it's definitely a conversation even around dietitians because, you know, once girls are in the system and they are performing at that very high level, they need a certain amount of protein and iron and so on. And that if they're not meeting those needs in order to build muscle and so on, their periods will stop or they'll skip one. So all that kind of stuff is is definitely talked about. There's actually too recently there was some research or it's continuing ongoing research about the relationship between the pill and, and limiting ACL injuries that, that actually had a, a positive impact. It's still... Um, very preliminary research, but how exciting and frustrating <laughs> that finally health science is focusing on the woman's body around sport in this sporting space. Like how belated is this, but also thank it's, God it started like mm. in a really substantial way. It's an incredible thing. And I don't know about you girls, but I would lose track of my period no matter how many times I put it in my diary or whatever for 20 something years, I forgot. <laughs> and so imagine having someone else tracking your period. I find that very handy, handy. <laughs> and, and, and we should give them a medal. 
So in the Women's World Cup for football, the other football, soccer, <laughs> um, you spoke about Megan Rapinoe last week, you know, and the amazing type of stuff that she's been doing out there, being very celebratory, uh, calling Donald Trump out on, you know, not being a president for everyone, being exclusionary and so on. What unfortunately caught my eye on the Twitter was um, she was at the ESPY Awards last week and um, there was a little clip that the network, you know, put up on their Twitter where, you know, a young person's put a football in front of her and she's signed it and given it back to him. But it was clearly like between in ad breaks or something. And then that's been retweeted tens of thousands of times by people saying that how cruel she was because she didn't kind of, she didn't make eye contact with the person. The football's kind of just shoved in her face and she signed it and gave it back. That, you know, therefore she's egotistical and she's up herself. And um, your favourite, Fierce Organ, um, retweeted it (laughs) saying, um, wow, doesn't even look at him, such an arrogant piece of work. And... What just struck me about that whole thing was, you know, the expectations that are put on female footballers or female athletes and how different they are to men. And I know that you're preaching to the choir on this pod because you talk about it all the time. But I just kept thinking about Jack Rewalt getting on the stage after the grand final with the killers and seeing Mr. Brightside. And if you looked at that, if that was a female, that would have been really belittled as what an arrogant, how stupid, how up yourself, whatever, instead of kind of the joyful nature of celebrating. Celebrating the gorgeousness and letting your hair down and celebrating that you've had a great win and you're on top of the world. And that that's not applied to, to Megan and, and that all the things she does is seen through this lens of arrogance and how dare she kind of step outside the box. And for me, you know, as a fellow soft butch, I love seeing her out there <laughs> doing that kind of thing. And it just strikes me that, you know, she doesn't really she doesn't seem to care about this criticism, at least not publicly. And what I see reflected in my own experience is when you move through the world not caring whether or not you're attractive to men, it's incredibly freeing. Um, And you make certain decisions and you speak your mind and you don't care whether you're going to appear masculine or whether you are somehow going to make yourself unmarriable. And I see that in her that she's willing to call things out as they are. Because I think when you move through the world, constantly curtailing your behaviour as, oh, I don't want to step out of this feminine box, I don't want to appear too abrasive or so on, it changes the way that you that you interact with things. And she just does not do that and I love it. This is <laughs> why we love it. <laughs> jo Conter did an amazing press release in the week. Yeah, she did. So Jo Conter is a British tennis player who's the world number 15. She was seeded 19 for the Wimbledon tournament that's just finished. And there was a really interesting development last week. She had lost in the quarterfinals of Wimbledon and then fronted up to a press conference. She's had a little bit of a tense relationship with the press, particularly the British press throughout her career. And then an exchange unfolded between Conta and a male journalist. I'll let you have a listen to it now. um, Looking at the numbers, 33 unforced errors. And then you had a a smash at the net, which you hit straight to her. And then towards the end of the third set, you had a double fault and then missed a, um, a drive volley. Do you not have to look at yourself a little bit about how you cope with these big points because it's all very well saying it's a lot to do with your opponent but there were key points when you perhaps could have done better is that in your professional tennis opinion no that's just as a watching <laughs> spectator with everyone else in to court willing you on okay um okay that, i mean i i don't think you need to pick on me in a, in a harsh way i mean i think uh, i think i'm i'm very open with you guys and i i say how i feel out there and if if you don't want to accept that answer or you don't agree with it that's fine but I still believe in the tennis that I play and I still believe in the way I competed and 
Yeah, I don't have much else to say to your question. I'm just asking you as somebody who presumably wants to go on from here, learn from this and, and win a Grand Slam one day. Is it not something that you need? Please don't patronise me. I'm I, I would have. No, no, you are. In, in the way you're I'm asking, your, in the way you're asking your question, you are being quite disrespectful, and you are patronising me. I'm a professional competitor who did her best today, and that's all there is to that. It's <laughs> wow. It's wow. quite the exchange, isn't it? And it does. It did actually remind me of Megan Rapinoe. The scrutiny that some women are, are placed under. Of course, male athletes and coaches are placed under that kind of scrutiny too. But there was a, a huge fallout from that press conference. Different perspectives on on Conta's response and approach. Some said that she was rude and and disrespectful herself. Others, like presenter Catherine Whitaker, lamented that she was being, and I'll quote here, grilled by a room full of mostly middle-aged white guys. Whitaker suggested that there was both a gender and a power dynamic that was going on not only in that press conference, but that many female athletes are subjected to. And I often think about the impact of, on uh, athlete health and well-being of that kind of scrutiny. There has to be a point at which we have a conversation about why it is that the press treats athletes in this way, that sometimes almost borders on bullying. And there were some suggestions that Conta was being bullied by the press, not just in that press conference, but over a long period of time. I wonder whether we see or would see this kind of treatment and scrutiny of male athletes. I think it happens sometimes, but I do feel there's something different going on for women. If you compare that press conference with the press conference Alan Richardson had after his resignation, where he was moving into territory discussing kind of the impact and sacrifices his family has made and started to get quite emotional and said, actually, I get emotional when I talk about my family. Can you not ask me any more questions like that? And the entire media moved on and didn't ask him any more questions. And I just Mm. think when you've got, there is a certain amount of authority that male athletes and male coaches seem to have automatically. But it also feels like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, right? A bit like Rapino, that there's no space in which women can operate where they're not transgressing some kind of arbitrary constructed normative boundary about how women should behave because if they're too outspoken or they push back in any way, they celebrate too hard, they Mm. walk into a room with too much swagger, all of that's unacceptable and inappropriate. I don't know what you think, Julia. Yeah, I agree. And I I think that if those subliminal messages, women actually bought into them, so they were smiling and obliging and um, inoffensive and not aggressive on court, well, they wouldn't win and they wouldn't Mm. be a story we wouldn't be interested in them. Well, that's Um, right. It's a division of armchair watcher and mm. sports person Mm. that we think that we can say to someone, look, you were really bad on the boundary. Um, You you know, you did this, this and this. It's incredible. At that moment, you are doing your very best. You're probably giving mathematically 110%. There was no better example of that during the week than the release of a survey from a UK survey that were published where people were asked whether or not they believed that they could win a point against Serena Williams if they were competing against her. And believe it or not, from the UK, the findings were that 3% of men play tennis and yet 12% of them said that they believed they could (laughs) win a point off Serena Williams. So 9% of men who do not even play think that they could just step up and beat her. And I saw the fallout of this on Twitter where a lot of people were quibbling and saying, well, you know, maybe they think they could win a point because she would double fault (laughs) as if she needs to be serving at her her optimum or maximum in order to um, to, to somehow beat these guys who've never picked up a racket. So from that kind of craziness to a really serious topic, concussion has been 
on our minds and many others for a long time. Nicole, what have you found? Yeah, there's been some recent developments and I think we can expect this to be an ongoing conversation, but also with lots of breakthroughs coming through. There's a lot more research being done. But most recently, two Australian rugby league players were diagnosed with CTEs, which is a degenerative brain condition associated with repeated blows to the head. The challenge in particular is that it's associated with concussion and subconcussive injuries. So one of the very frightening kind of components of this is that you might not show any reaction to head injuries and yet still potentially over time develop this horrible condition. Um, this is uh, Steve Folks was then identified as a Canterbury performer player and coach was one of these players. He died of a heart irregularity last year at the age of 59. And more and more we're seeing athletes donating their brains to what's known as the brain bank. There's a whole lot of research being done, but first they've got to collect the data. The challenge with CTE is that it is only diagnosed post-mortem. So you can't actually detect it until the person has died. So they currently have more than 80 brains pledged by former athletes in Australia from all codes and varying levels. Several AFL players have indicated that they too might are keen to donate their brain. Nick Rewalt, Jude Bolton and Gary Lyon said that they'd posthumously donate their brains for future research into the effects of concussion. It's a particularly problematic and challenging area for these codes. And as long as this continues to be an unknown condition and so many unknowns around it, it's such an important issue for sport at elite and grassroots level. Oh, with the news that Jack Higgins has suffered uh, a brain bleed Mm. and uh, after playing Richmond's VFL game against Werribee on Sunday. It's just a sad thing to think that uh, he's been having headaches and the ongoing uh, ramifications of that. So it's something that we're hearing all the time. Yeah, look, I think a a reckoning's probably coming in the sport we love, Mm. to be honest. Mm. I think it might, if we're really going to listen to what's happening and listen to medical professionals, that the sport might look really different in 10 or 15 years. If that means that people have their full brain capacity for the rest of their life, that I think that's the price that we're willing to pay and we should be willing to pay at least. And I know that, you know, when people watch the game now, there's all this thing about that it's too soft and, you know, in my day we used to bash them in the head and so on. But that's not okay. Like Mm. those voices are not voices that we need to listen to and take into account as a rational idea. That is a longing for something sentimental that we can't do anymore because we know better. VFLW, what is happening, Julia? We're kind of into the the home stretch. We've just finished round 10. There's six more to go. You heard Sabrina and Melissa talk a little bit about it last week. It is a very different competition to what it used to be because of the impact that AFLW is having. You've got lots of teams that look quite different from week to week um, because the AFLW listed players only play a set amount. Their loads are managed. Um, As an example, Richmond, who've been an incredibly dominant side um, all year, at the weekend played Melbourne Uni. As we know, Melbourne Uni are aligned with North Melbourne. Melbourne Uni had in that team Jazzy Garner, Jess Duffin, Kate Gillespie-Jones, Brooke Gibbs, and Ash Riddell, Jenna Bruton, just, you know. Superstars. Just <laughs> some Star. superstars. Anyway, so Richmond, who have been really blitzing the competition, it was seven points to 77 and Melbourne wow. Uni got up. 
right? Mm. So it is a real strange kind of a thing. But apart from that, I think that the development happening in the league is really exceptional. You know, I'm the mids coach at Darabin. We're in a development phase now because we've got a lot of young players and our older, uh, more established players have been playing with AFLW clubs now. They've got to play in their uh, aligned VFLW sides or they just are having a break. You know, it's it's been a long three years for some players where they've kind of played 24 months of consecutive footy, so they have the winter off. So for us, we've won two of the last three games we've played, so that that's a good turnaround for us. But exciting when you're looking at um, the next season coming in because we've got Saints and Richmond are coming in and they're second and third on the ladder. So right now they're, they're playing players that they have pre-listed, but also other players that they're having a look at to see if they might might list. So it's great. It's There's a lot of really good footy happening, so I'd encourage people to, to go along to a game. But it is also a really tense time for players who aren't already listed um, because mm. they're trying to show um, what they can do. They're trying to draw the attention of list managers. But at the same time, it's a team sport. So, you know, you still have to give the hands off and not have a blazing shot at goal and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. But at the same time, you know, well, maybe if I'd have a blazing shot at goal and it goes in, a list manager might see me and so on. So it's a real funny balance and and there are a lot of girls, you know, who at this time of year, it's pretty tense because so much has been made about AFLW and that that is now the pinnacle of, of football um, and that VFLW is now, uh, you know, a much lower rung, which is, I think, a bit of a shame because that's ultimately where the bulk of the footy happens. That's six months of the year. And in just really quick AFLW news, uh, Adelaide player and dual coder Jenna McCormack was in Ninja Warrior the other night. I was really <laughs> excited to see that. So good on her. And in other news, advertising consultant Russell Hansen has done analysis of whether Tasmania will be a good viable AFL team. Matt Maloney writes in The Advocate that uh, Mr Hansen worked on and the assumption there'd be 17,000 people in attendance and 11 home and away games for two two pre-season games and has done the maths and said that's pretty good. Um, He worked on the assumption of $20 million in funding from the AFL for a team based on a membership spanning from 30 to 50,000 members in Tasmania. At the moment, Queensland two clubs receive $27.8 million in funding and Greater Western Sydney Giants receive $24.7 and this is despite the three clubs having the lowest membership in the entire league. So he's saying it's all doable Go Tasmania. The Tassie Devils? Is that what they're going to be called? <laughs> Surely. Because the t- Tigers like... is taken, right? Go Just... Devils. <laughs> the Tassie, Tassie Apples. What about when the Devils and the Demons play one another? Maybe <laughs> hell on true. earth. God will. <laughs> oh, boom, boom. I'm Melissa Hickey, and you're listening to The Outer Sanctum. Well, it gives us great pleasure now to welcome to the podcast a friend of the podcast, but more importantly, the Federal Sex Discrimination Commissioner, Kate Jenkins, who joins us from Sydney. Kate, thanks so much for being with us on The Outer Sanctum. Thanks, Kate. It's great to be here and hi to all of you. Oh, thanks so much. Well, we wanted to get you on to talk about all things sport and footy, but in particular, there's been a really big development that you've been central to in the last couple of months, and that is um, the development and then release of some guidelines which are designed to promote the inclusion of transgender and gender diverse people in sport. Tell us a little bit about how these guidelines came about and why it was that they were needed. Yes, it's really exciting time. The conversation 
conversation about transgender and gender diverse people uh, playing in sport has been really building over time. And so the guidelines came about initially from conversations with Sport Australia looking to help sports to understand both what their obligations were from a legal perspective, but also what would good practice look like. And then they were also supported by the Coalition of Major Professional and Participation Sports, netball, football of all codes, cricket, and I'm going to forget one of the codes, but tennis as well. They all came on board to support us to do the work. And the work was done by consulting with a whole range of different stakeholders, including athletes and also the sporting clubs and experts in the area. They were driven a lot by a desire to be better and to know what, understand what they should be doing. We wrote this really recognising that, you know, at a grassroots level, you're probably all involved with the local sporting clubs that are often led by volunteers who hold a whole lot of positions in the club. And so we did write the guidelines recognising that those leaders wanted information just as much as, you know, the CEO of Tennis Australia was interested in the guidance. And in looking at the leadership perspective, it was really just starting with understand both what the law are, but again, what your intent is for your sporting club. And across the board in Australia, one of the most consistent themes that we heard is the intent is to get as many people to play the sport, their sport as possible. But when you start from that perspective, what we found was the leadership to engage and just to understand and then to set the sort of objectives really needed in the trans and gender diverse area, needed some more information and a better understanding. And the really practical things we heard about were uniforms, facilities, application forms, what teams people play in. They were really practical things. And so we've really tried to give some guidance on those things. And we've already had feedback that that's really what this turns into. If a trans person comes to play, lots of people are saying, well, you know, how do I navigate that situation to stop the confusion and to create better inclusive practice? Often it's the onus is put on the trans person to kind of prove themselves as being a female and that that process has has been incredibly laborious and invasive in a lot of ways in terms of the, the private information that's offered up. So do you feel like taking this more practical approach is going to change that? Uh, yeah, I think we really focused on that point, on creating a better understanding on how the specific exceptions work where trans people particularly play in uh, women's sport. This is the issue that's come up most frequently. Mm -hmm. The laws are pretty clear. The Sex Discrimination Act prohibits discrimination on the basis of gender identity. It has a number of exceptions, but put aside the sort of really technical ones. The one that we end up spending a lot of time talking about is the exception that says where you have a competitive sport where strengths, stamina and physique are relevant, then you may discriminate. It doesn't say you must discriminate. In putting these guidelines together, every sport is different, but we have done a particular spotlight on what would those requirements be, which I would expect would particularly create better clarity for both the clubs and the trans athlete. What we've come up with is a model that says 
if you choose, and really most of the codes have really said they would only look to those excluding trans athletes at the highest, most elite level. And if they're doing that, then we've set out for them the guidelines on what they need to look at. So firstly, it has to be something that the strength, stamina and physique is relevant. So for example, shooting would not be a sport where that would be relevant. So some sports would not even, this would not even come into play. But where it does, then the test is what is the relevance that would make it far enough out of the the range that there would be unfairness. Angela, I think your question is right, that this is a space where there is lots of discussion about physical testosterone levels. There's lots of discussion about where the difference is. At this stage, we've seen a couple of codes looking at really becoming quite specific about what they would say um, makes that difference relevant. But they've also, when I've spoken to them, said, we will actually learn as we go, we can get better at this. So I think the positive is that they're getting more transparent on what the requirements are. And there's a lot of scrutiny about that, including by this podcast, which I think is really productive. Oh, thanks, Kate. That's a very useful explanation for us of some of those challenges. There's a couple of other statements in the guidelines that really struck me, statements that you made in your sort of opening preface to the guidelines. You, you start by mentioning that participation in sport is a human right. And then you go on to say that just as a person must be able to bring their whole self to work, a person must also be able to bring their whole self to any sport they participate in. I wonder whether in the discussions in the process of developing these guidelines, there was an opportunity to engage in a conversation with some of these sporting organisations about those priorities as well. That's a really great point. And that conversation about human rights really did have traction with the sporting code. There is that conversation about fairness. And my reframing of that was always, well, isn't it fair that everyone gets to play? Not that it's fair that you have, that you get to choose who your competitors are so that they're in a narrower spectrum. My experience actually to be really positive about this is the response to these guidelines has been from sporting codes has been so positive. Uh, We've had incredible engagement both through the process. So the process took some time and through that there is no question that sporting codes developed their skills and really embraced the work. It was really clear to us that sporting codes we're almost desiring to be the best at including trans and gender diverse athletes, not just to include those athletes, but because they knew of the benefits of the reputation of just being an inclusive sport across the board. So I think that there's been a real shift even in the last five years. And if I go to some of the conversations I've had both with trans athletes and their families, again, in the last month, it's already having a great impact that People have said to me, I know I was at a meeting for another context, and one of the participants said, thank you so much. Before we get on to this topic, thank you so much for that work. He had a trans sister. He said sport was what had given her an ability to get back into community, had been really a lifesaver. I've heard of other examples of doctors who are prescribing participation in sport as part of the treatment of trans people. They're helping through their mental health issues because they know that that 
participation will reinforce that they are included, that they are welcome, that it isn't part of their condition that they shouldn't have access to sport. So I'm really pleased and I do think we're at a at a turning point where this should not be the discriminatory experience going forward that it has been in the past. One last question I just wanted to ask you away from the guidelines is about what you're doing in the sporting context more broadly. Of course, you've been on the Carlton board in previous years. You've been involved very heavily in working on violence against women through sport. What else is is happening? How are you maintaining your connection to sport more broadly? Yes, well, I'm still going to all those Carlton games, of course, (laughs) um, and enjoying some of the wins, which is exciting. Um, I'm also co-chair of Play by the Rules. You might know that that is the coalition between sporting organisations, the sports commissions and the human rights agencies across the country. We've recently released some guidelines for golf, uh, which is revolutionary, ensuring women are not being discriminated against on the golfing fields. At the moment, we're also partnering with Shark Island on their amazing film, The Final Quarter for Adam Good. So we are providing some tools and resources to help people talk about racism off the back of watching that film. And I know it's on on the 18th of July for everyone to see on, on another channel, on Channel 10. And the aim is for as many people as possible to see that and have a conversation about racism. So I'm definitely keeping my hand in sport in other ways. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I know when you were appointed to the role as Commissioner, Kate, you said that you would use sport as one of the platforms to further the message and discussion about the promotion of human rights and particularly uh, the prevention of sex discrimination. So I'm so pleased you chose this as a focus area. Congratulations on all the work you're doing. Good luck with it. Thank you very much for speaking to us on the Outer Sanctum and we'll have you on again down the track, no doubt. Thank you very much. Thanks, Kate. Joining us now to continue the conversation about transgender and gender diverse inclusion in sport, friend of the pod, uh, who's been on before, but we haven't seen you in the studio for a while, Hannah Mouncey. Thank you so much for joining us. No worries. First time in the studio, so it's good. Well, thank you very much for joining us. As you know, we've had a conversation with Kate Jenkins, a federal sex discrimination commissioner. And Kate's been talking us through these new guidelines that have been developed to try and encourage and promote transgender and gender diverse inclusion in sport. I'd love to hear a little bit about your perspective on on those guidelines and your journey and pathway to, to being included in sport. The, the guidelines that you mentioned, they're actually really, really good. It largely reflects what a lot of grassroots clubs are doing at the moment anyway, in that trans inclusion in sport's been built up to this really big controversial thing, whereas realistically 99% of the time it's actually not an issue at all for people because you've got to remember most people are playing at a social level. So, you know, it's good. It's really good in that it reflects what's actually already happening. The process of developing those guidelines was really inclusive. So I know there were multiple days held with probably up to 60 or 70 sporting organisations asking, what do you want these guidelines to say? What are your experiences? They brought in people from outside sport who are trans people and non-binary people to say, what do you want? What's your experience? So it was a really inclusive process. And and I think they're really, really good for community level stuff. and, And it's brilliant. There's still a bit of room for improvement in the elite space, but that was never going to be the scope of, of this policy. So it was never designed to be that way. It was never sold that way. So it's it's done, you know, pretty much exactly what it was said set out to do and, and it's done it really well. On the ground, when you're out playing, are you seeing a shift? I mean, it's they're still quite new, these these guidelines, but has there been a shift in terms of how you're treated and, and received? 
It's really hard to say. I think a lot of it depends what you look like still. So for me, it, it always has been quite difficult. You're very aware of that. Whereas I think someone who is a bit smaller or looks like someone would expect someone who's trans or a woman to look like has a lot easier time. And I think for me, it's really difficult too, because when I was playing up in, up in Canberra, no one knew who I was. So there'd been none of the media stuff and I was really welcomed with open arms. It was brilliant. And then when I came to Melbourne, it was a little bit difficult because there was obviously a lot more involved. It was a lot more complicated because there had been all that media stuff. I've got to basically say, you know, I am unique in my experiences are influenced by all these other factors, but by and large, people are really good. But I do know that with me, the media changed things a lot. Like in the last year, I know I spoke to someone from Williamstown, someone from Melbourne Uni, someone from someone else, and they were all terrified before the game because of everything that had been built up in the media. And I since know that now, but after the game, they went, oh, that was fine. That now probably extends to any other trans person that's playing is that because the media sensationalised what I was doing so much, it might now affect everyone else. For me, people have been really good at putting that to one side and actually just going, well, hang on, let's just see what happens. Hannah, what's happening in your sporting lands or your own sporting space at the moment? Because I know you've been continuing to play uh, handball. Yeah. You've you play for Australia and you've been playing footy. So tell us what's happening. Where are yeah, you? Yeah. So I mean, I'm not I'm not playing football anymore, but I yeah continuing to play handball. I mean, I've played for Australia since 2012. So that was prior to transition as well. So I now play for the women's national team. Went to Japan last year, qualified for the world championships, which was brilliant. So um, we've got world championships at the end of this year in the back half of November and start of December in Japan. You know, that is part of the Olympic qualification process. So what happens after that really just depends on how well we compete at the world championships as to what our Olympic qualification pathway is like. So we've got four months till there and, and that'll really be the focus for now. Can I ask you why you're not playing footy anymore? Uh, look, by the end of last season, um, I was mentally just absolutely exhausted. I, I was, and it was impacting on other people, even if I didn't necessarily realise it, but I, I was exhausted. I, I really was. You know, also I realised that I couldn't play both in the sense that balancing football and handball was really exhausting because, you know, you'd go to training with, with one team and be expected to do everything, which is understandable, and then go the exact same scenario with another. So you're essentially doing it. The workload is twice as much and I, I just couldn't recover. So like it, it just wasn't possible and I really had to prioritise one. But also, you know, the way the AFL went with its policy, it was designed to exclude people. So um, it was made very clear that trans people weren't welcome when that policy was released. And so, you know, I mean, I, I just couldn't be bothered. But at the same time, you know, I, I don't you know, have any ill feeling towards football for that. That was a group of people at the very top of an organisation and that's not representative of football itself. Like I said, the grassroots clubs are brilliant. Everyone I met within AFL clubs was brilliant. I mean, part of when I started playing last year, a lot of people, why I'm not sure, were going, oh, well, you're from Canberra, so you'll be crap anyway. You know, like that was part of it. <laughs> and, you know, I think I showed people that, you know, if I'd been given a chance at AFL level, I, I would have done okay. You know, there are obviously things where I wasn't great, but I would have been more than up to it. You know, I, I don't have any ill feeling towards it and I've still got handball. And that was always you know, my first sport, even last year, even when all the stuff for the AFL was going on originally, it was always my first sport. Football was just something came along. When I was playing Canberra, I was offered an opportunity. I said, why not? So I pursued it. And you know what? I've got a lot of really great friends out of it, had a lot of really great experiences. So I can't complain. 
And you met us. <laughs> exactly. I said <laughs> I got a lot of fr- great friends out of it. We're in a really changing space right now. And in terms of what you would like to see happen, whether it's on a public or whether it's within policy, what, what do you think for the future? Well, I think the policy is well ahead of where public perception is at. You know, I think one of the things that really, really annoys me, to be honest, it's actually got me really angry, is the fact that, you know, if you look at it when... Eddie Betts, and and he's the one who's copped it the most publicly, I think, was copping all sorts of racist abuse. There was this big outcry about it, and justifiably, of course, there should be. When Taylor Harris was copping it from the photo that came out at the end of the AFLW season, the outcry was huge. Yet you see all sorts of transphobic abuse and homophobic abuse, and there's nothing. That's not okay. And so what it shows is there's a lot of people out there who have decided, yep, I'm inclusive, I'm accepting this, this and this, and done it on their terms. They've said, well, you know, the trainings have got expected a bit and they've sort of just got to accept it. But I don't see why we have to expect it and why you have to accept it. It's not good enough. You know, I'm in a position which I didn't ask to be in, but I do have a platform. I get all these messages from trans kids and their parents who have taken a lot from the fact that, you know, I've been able to be successful in a small way through sport. You know, for the kids, it said, I I feel like I can do something now and I can be something. And the parents, it's really given them hope for their children. So for me to sit back here and not call it out and actually say to people, what's going on is not good enough. You know, I owe it to those kids and those parents to do it. And that's, that's really where I'm at at the moment is just saying, Guys, if, if you're going to call out one sort of abuse, um, then you need to call out everything. Otherwise, just don't bother. We have you to thank for a lot of the, the, the change that is happening and is being done because you've been uh, a real voice for change and progress. I know it's taken a personal toll at times, um, but I want to commend and congratulate you and thank you for everything you've done to, to promote that uh, conversation for us as a community and also for coming on the podcast today and, and encouraging us to to keep going and keep working. So thanks heaps, Hannah. Oh, we appreciate thank it. Thank you. You guys yeah. are nice. <laughs> <laughs> we try. I know we said it was going to be a race-free day, but can we just squeeze in a little felicity? I've been going to the footy for at least four decades and one question I hear asked all the time has really never been answered. So today's the day we're going to explore the greatest mystery in football. What's actually in a meat pie? Don't panic. I promise to be very respectful to the one third of our podcast and many of our listeners who don't eat meat. But surveys show that one in every eight people at the football will purchase a pie. Football or not, it's estimated that the average Australian will eat 12 meat pies a year. Now I want to stop here and just fact check that a little because unless all pie companies declare all their sales, this has to be a guess. I mean, I don't remember this being on the last census. I assume that the powers that be have pretty good data or possibly just count the empty sauce bottles and divide by 12. But either way, the pie is pretty common. Ian Arthur from the Australian Society for the History of Engineering and Technology researched and curated a project a while back entitled The Meat Pie, Australia's Own Fast Food. And what he found was the pie was first developed as far back as the second century AD. And it was developed as a way to hold cooked meat with a pastry just there as a container. Now, as far back as the Middle Ages, there were apparently felt-clad pie vendors in the street, yelling out the Middle Ages version of hot pies in their leather jerkins and funky hand-stitched shoes. Sounds a bit like the inner north of Melbourne, but probably a little more plague. The pie hit our shores with the ships back in the late 1700s, but really large-scale production began in the 1940s when Australia's largest pie maker set up in Bendigo in Victoria, where it was producing a whopping 50 pies a day. But within a year, they'd moved to much larger premises at the Melbourne showgrounds. And in 50 years, the company's pie making grew from 50 a day to more than 50,000 pies an hour. 
Now there's a very rarely celebrated landmark in Melbourne, which is at the Melbourne showgrounds, that acknowledges the pie. A tower topped with a meat pie. Anyway, when you are web browsing the pies, it's very hard to avoid the constant questions of, yeah, but what's actually in it? And here's the bit where I promise I'm not going to ruin pies for you. But it is interesting that one of the top searches that comes up is the Food Standards website, which states that a whole lot of interest around meat pies relates to what's in it, how much meat and what kind of meat's used. Well, what I will tell you is that the Food Standards Code stipulates that a meat pie must contain a minimum of 25% meat. That's all, just 25%. The code doesn't state what the source of the meat must be in the pie, but it does state what sources of meat you can't use. And that's all the detail I'm going to go into. But what makes up the other 75%? Gravy, pastry, and vegetable proteins. So I'm not sure that a pie really meets the protein requirements for football players, but I will say they seem to be okay for fans. It is that time for final business. Let's wrap up the show with a bang, Kate. <laughs> oh, I just wanted to mention Danny Marshall, who a couple of months ago came on our podcast and talked about her dream of playing AFLW. She's a woman from the United States. She'd been playing in Arizona, but decided to come out here in the hope that she might get spotted and, and picked up. A few days ago, we saw the wonderful news that the Western Bulldogs have signed her as a rookie. So it's a wonderful, heartwarming story. She's also the first American woman to to be signed to play women's footy uh, in AFLW. And I saw a little interview snippet with her husband in the United States who shared what it meant to him. She's always had in her to do something like this and to see her finally get her shot. Like there was never a question. It's like, of course. <laughs> Good grief. I'm sorry. So sweet. So yes, sweet. He, it's a great story. And she comes to give him a hug at the end. I know. <laughs> so adorable. <laughs> I was actually paying some attention to the NRL. They're doing some great things over there in terms of Belinda Sharp is going to become the first female referee in the history of the game. Sharp's been appointed assist referee for the match between Brisbane Broncos, <laughs> Brisbane Broncos, <laughs> Brisbane <laughs> Broncos and the Bulldogs on Thursday night. We do have Casey Badger's first female touch judge in the NRL. So we, you know, it's great to see more women out there on the field and uh, really exciting for Belinda and Congratulations and good luck. And you may have seen during the week Eva Victor. She, she is an American comedian and she has gone all sorts of topics. She loves Megan Rapinoe, so that's a, a good thing too. But this is dedicated to Emma Race, who had a fight with her husband about <laughs> equal pay and all those kind and sexism and so forth, because there has been a lot of talk about equal pay. And this is uh, Eva Victor explaining to her husband and her husband explaining back to her what equal pay is. It's hilarious. Babe, babe, stop. Okay, I hear you screaming equal pay to the TV screen and I don't think you quite understand what's going on. I'm going to explain it to you. Basically, equal pay is when women and men are going to make the exact same amount of money despite doing the exact same job. Do you not understand how that's an impossibility, babe? What do you mean it's the same sport? No, it's the same ball, but women... So basically, a woman kicks a ball and that's a woman's sport. And when a man kicks a ball, that's a sport. Basically, it's sexist towards men for women to not deal with sexism. Boom, 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 I'm writing a book. Okay, babe, let's put it to the test. Basically, you're given the option to hire an electrician or a woman electrician. The electrician comes with a screwdriver 
and the woman electrician comes with a woman screwdriver. Electrician has an okay rating on Yelp and the woman electrician has the highest rating to date on any electrician in the city. You're really telling me you would hire the woman electrician over the electrician? Babe, you're scaring me. I feel like I'm hearing divorce bells like ding, ding, ding. Okay, babe, so you're telling me that when I go to work, I deserve the same amount of money as my coworker, Frank, who has not yet figured out Excel? What? Babe, you're losing it. <laughs> You've lost your marbles. Okay. If you keep talking like that, I'm gonna have to turn off the women's soccer and just let that general soccer play. <laughs> <laughs> the women's soccer she is gold and uh, advances equal pay more, more than most. It has been a pleasure having you, Julia. Thanks, Alicia. I'm glad that I get to, uh, well, you obviously fly the women's football card, but I've just made it that much more <laughs> difficult to talk about AFLM. I just wanted to encourage everyone to get along to a state league game this weekend. The Darabin Falcons are playing Essendon at Windy Hill on Saturday at 12, but probably the match of the round is Collingwood, who are on the top of the ladder, playing Melbourne Uni. I uh, have a star-studded team in at the moment, and they're out at Morewell, so if you're in Gippsland, get along to that. So for the first time ever, do we say go men's footy? Because <laughs> yeah, they, get, we should give they them never a get a go. Up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so you know what we say, Julia? Go, go footy! footy.